You're listening to Food Integrity Now with Carol Gravet, Matt Spaeth, and Jeannie Smith, revealing the truth about the food we eat. Hello and welcome to Food Integrity Now. I'm Carol Gravet. I'm the host of your show today. Food Integrity Now reveals the truth about the food we eat. You can find us on iTunes. Just search Food Integrity Now and you'll find all our podcasts of, I think we have some 63 shows we've done so far. You can also find us on Facebook at Food Integrity Now. And our website is foodintegritynow.org. And we are excited for to introduce our guest today, Robin O'Brien. Uh, yeah, uh, Robin O'Brien, you may have seen her, uh, her, her video on Facebook, which I didn't even realize that was you, Robin, until I took a second look recently. Uh, she did the uh, TEDx talk. And Robin is a nationally recognized author, speaker, consultant. She is former, formerly a financial and food industry analyst. And Time Magazine has called her the Aaron Brockovich, uh, the food Aaron Brockovich, which um, is quite an accolade. So, Robin, welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much for putting a great show together. Oh, you're, you're welcome. So, Robin, you also have four children, and you have uh, founded uh, an organization called Aller- Allergy Kids Foundation, which really focuses on restoring the health of American children. So how did you go from being a financial and food industry analyst to becoming a person that's a, on a crusade for healthy food? I mean, it is such an unlikely journey. And I think, you know, if somebody had suggested to me 10 years ago that I would be doing this, I would have flat out said they were absolutely nuts. I mean, I was definitely in the camp that if stuff was on grocery store shelves, it was totally fine. I didn't want to hear anybody talking about organic. I didn't want to, you know, anybody to tell me what to feed my kids. Um, I'd been born and raised in Houston, Texas, and I ate my fair share of Doritos and Ding Dongs as a kid. I packed my lunch with Twinkies, Um, you know, and so to suggest that something on our grocery store shelves wouldn't be safe. I mean, to me, that struck me as, as, a, as an incredibly far reach. Um, and I had been an analyst. I had covered the food industry, among others, when I was um, working on Wall Street. And so, you know, when we met the management teams of places like Whole Foods. Um, they'd come through our offices and, you know, oftentimes they'd order up veggie subs. And, and we just thought they've carved out a nice marketing niche. This is lifestyle, the rich and famous or some hippie thing. And that was about as, as far as, as, as it went. Um, and then when I decided to trade my briefcase for a diaper bag, we had four children in just over five years. And, you know, like most busy moms, I was literally just trying to get through the day, trying to get those kids fed. And again, I trusted that if it was on grocery store shelves, it was safe. And then one morning over breakfast, our youngest child had an allergic reaction. And in all candor, I was so unfamiliar with what a food allergy actually looks like that when her face started to swell shut that morning, I turned to my older three and I just said, you know, what did you put in her face? And they all gave me the blank little kids stares. And at that point, you know, I got pretty scared and I raced her to the pediatrician's office and she said, you know, Robin, this looks like an allergic reaction. And she's asking what I fed the kids for breakfast. And in all honesty, it was Lego my ego waffles, tubes of blue yogurt and scrambled eggs that day. And she said, well, those are three of the top eight allergens. And so she starts rattling off all these statistics about how, 
prevalent food allergies have become in children and how the top eight allergens included milk, eggs, wheat, peanuts, soy, you know, and I'm sitting there in that office and all I could think was, what in the world am I going to feed this child? How is this child going to be able to eat? And since when did food become so dangerous? And so as we got everything under control and I got the baby, you know, stabilized and everything, we got home and I put all the kids down for a nap. And that, at that moment, every single analytical gene in my body went off. And I really wanted to see the data. I really wanted to understand what is happening to the American children. And I, I truly, I don't think anything could have prepared me for what I began to unearth that day. You know, when I was growing up, I don't remember any kids having food allergies. I mean, it just, you know, it just didn't happen. So absolutely. You know, and a lot of people would say, are these just mothers over diagnosing these children, mothers clamoring for attention? You know, I addressed that that argument head on because I went straight to the CDC data. And according to the CDC, there had been a 265 percent increase in the rate of hospitalizations related to food allergic reactions. So that's doctors checking people into the ER. And it's not just kids. It's big kids, too checking people into the ER. And so as I started looking at that data, I learned that from 1997 till 2002, there had been a doubling of the peanut allergy. At the point of time when this research began for me just over five years ago, one out of 17 kids under the age of three now has a food allergy. And these statistics were just jaw-dropping. And so as I learned what a food allergy actually is, a food allergy is when your body sees food proteins as foreign and basically launches an inflammatory response to drive out that foreign invader. And so in some cases, it can be mild. We're all pretty familiar with it. It can be like, you know, runny nose, kind of mucusy, you know, kind of a chesty cough, maybe some eczema. But in other cases, it can be severely life-threatening and can cause a life-threatening allergic reaction. And so as I learned that, you know, it was a body seeing food as foreign, to me, it just begged the question, is there something foreign in our food that wasn't there when we were children? And I think truly that's when my story began, because that's when I learned that in 1994, in order to drive profitability for the dairy industry, scientists were using a new technology where they were able to genetically engineer an E. coli bacteria to help manufacture an artificial growth hormone that they injected into cows to help them make more milk. So as I learned that, you know, the analyst in me thought, okay, this makes perfect sense. You're injecting these cows. It helps them make more milk. That's good for the dairy industry. If that helps lower the cost of milk for me as a mom, I, you know, I can appreciate that. But then I went on to learn that the United States was the only developed country in the world to allow for the introduction of this genetically engineered E. coli bacteria, artificial growth hormone into our dairy. And the reasons that the other countries around the world, every single other developed country around the world said, we're not going to allow this into our food supply, is because the warning labels on the package for this artificial growth hormone state that it causes reproductive problems, it causes mastitis, it causes ovarian cysts, and it results in an increased antibiotic use in the animals that it's injected into. And so for that reason alone, because of what it did to the cows, governments around the world said, we don't want this in our food. And then later, studies started to come out that showed that it also elevated hormone levels that were linked to breast, prostate, and colon cancer. And so again, governments around the world said, we do not want to allow this into our food. And yet here in the U.S., we allowed it into our milk supply without labels. And consumers had no way of knowing that this new artificial growth hormone, this genetically engineered protein, had been introduced. And so as I learned that, you know, 
as a mother, it was incredibly hard to digest that information. And there were nights where I was putting our youngest child to bed where all I could think was, how many sippy cups did I pour this milk into? And how many bowls of, of cereal did I pour this on? Not knowing that there were no long-term human trials and that the United States was the only developed country in the world to ever introduce it into our dairy. And so as I you know, continued through looking at that data, I wanted to know, you know, what are the rates of cancer? If cancer was a concern with this elevated growth hormone, what are the rates of cancer here in the U.S. versus the rest of the world? So I turned to the American Cancer Society and the World Health Organization and others, and I learned the U.S. has one of the highest rates of cancer of any country on the planet, and that migration studies show that if you were to move here from somewhere like Japan, your likelihood of developing cancer increases fourfold. I then went on to learn that one out of two men and one out of three women are expected to get cancer in their lifetime. But I think the hardest thing that I learned was that according to the CDC, cancer is the leading cause of death by disease in children under the age of 15. Now there are a ton of environmental and lifestyle factors that are at play. And correlation is definitely not causation. But if every other developed country around the world it said, we're not going to allow this into our dairy because of these health concerns. It begged the question, why did we do this here in the U.S.? And it really, you know, as I continued on, I realized that not only was this new foreign protein in our milk and that milk was the most common allergy in the U.S., according to the Wall Street Journal and, the CNN, and CNN, but that there were also new proteins and other top allergens like soy and corn. And so the story continued. Wow. Yeah. And so uh, in your studies, uh, what, what, what is your opinion on, on, on why? Oh, technology is wonderful, isn't it? On why? Well, the stories. Um, <laughs> no, my, yeah. que my question is, so what did you find? What, where did it lead you to? Why are we the only uh, country that was allowing this growth hormone in our milk? Well, you know, most countries basically, they took a regulatory approach that said, we're not going to allow this into our food supply until it's been proven safe. And so the responsibility then gets put on the producer, in this case, the, the agricultural chemical companies that are producing these products, to prove that their products are safe. And here in the U.S., we take a different approach. We say, we're going to allow this into the food supply until it's been proven dangerous. So you don't actually have to prove safety. You just have to, to basically produce what needs to be produced to get it onto the market. And the way that that was done here in the U.S. was with a new term that was introduced called substantial equivalent. And basically these, these agricultural chemical corporations were able to show that you know this new protein is substantially equivalent to the existing proteins in these products. And the definition of that is by taste, sight, smell, has nothing to do with the actual chemical structure or these, these new, um, the new genetic material that's been engineered into these, into these products. And in some cases, um, some of the engineered proteins are new insecticidal proteins that are being engineered into these products. And so this term substantial equivalence is really a very loose umbrella that they were able to operate under. Is that um, through the FDA? It's through the FDA, um, and then, you know, these crops are also regulated by the USDA, 
-hmm. And because some of these crops, um, like corn, for example, have been engineered to produce their own insecticide, mm -hmm. those crops are actually regulated by the EPA as an insecticide because of these insecticidal proteins that they can generate internally. And so, um, you know, again, it's, it's, it speaks to the fact that basically we introduced a new technology in the food supply without a, without a regulatory system really in place to address it. And because the expertise was completely in the hands of the company introducing these products, they did a remarkable job of dictating policy in the way that, that regulation would be structured around them. Um, early on, for example, with that artificial growth hormone in our dairy, um, the woman who drafted the report to be reviewed by the FDA, then stepped down from her position at the corporation, took a position within the FDA and reviewed and approved her own report. And again, you know, I mean, technically there's nothing wrong with that type of a revolving door, but, you know, given the fact that this is the safety of our food supply, it really does beg the question, shouldn't we have independent studies and shouldn't we have people addressing these issues without this kind of inherent conflict of interest? Right, and that revolving door um, is seen over and over again um, in regard to labeling and, uh, you know, I'm not going to go through the whole list of... Uh, of uh, all the people that have been employed by some of these big biotech companies that are now in uh, regulatory positions and are, you know, part of making making the laws. And you can just do a Google search on that. So um, that's a real problem. Well, and it's not just in the food industry. I mean, it, it simply is. It's the system we have today. And I don't think anybody intentionally went into it you know, with this mastermind plan to construct this really broken system. I think that it's just like anything, we've had this erosion over time. And we've seen the same type of revolving door in the financial industry, right. um, in the banking sector. You know, we've had plenty of Goldman Sachs executives go in and out of, of Treasury Department positions. This is the same thing here, you know. Right. And right. we've seen the power that these lobbying groups have. Um, and, and it's very similar. You know, we deregulated the financial system and we ended up with a bunch of really toxic assets. We're continuing to see the impact of that today. It wasn't just the housing bubble and the crisis there. The same things happened with food. We deregulated the food system and now we've got a bunch of toxic assets. And I think, you know, to spend a whole lot of time looking back on who might or might not have been responsible, what intention or what incentive they might have had in place is not the best use of anybody's time. And now we've got this this system, how do we fix it or how do we actually create a new one? And I think, you know, it brings up a lot of issues. And one of the other issues that I think really um, needs to be addressed is this conflict of, of interest issue that, you know, we're not only seeing um, and these employees going back and forth between government agencies and the corporations introducing these products. But, you know, the very, the very fact that the United States is one of the only countries where the Food Administration and the Drug Administration are, are housed under one roof. And to really separate those things, you know, to say let's have a separate food agency and let's have a separate drug agency, because really regulating those two things are, are entirely different. Um, and it brings, you know, a lot of, a lot of the issues uh, to the forefront. I mean, we have a lot of ingredients in the U.S. food supply beyond these genetically engineered ones that have simply never been introduced or have been removed from products in other countries. And a great example of that are these artificial dyes. They're increasingly being linked with hyperactivity. 
and yet here in the U.S., they're you know they're put into every kid's cereal practically on the market, um, and then they're also found in a lot of the kids' medicine. And so you know, for us to really address artificial dyes here in the U.S., you know, we've got to address it on a lot of levels. And I think that's why you you tend to see such incredible hesitancy from the FDA because there's so much lobbying pressure from industry. Right, correct. So you started doing all this research, and it led you to discovering a lot about the unhealthy food that is in this country. And then you decided to write a book. Tell us about that. You know, I got to admit, I did not decide to write a book. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was asked to write a book. Um, as, I, as I started learning this information, I reached out to some of the larger food allergy groups because I felt that nobody was talking about this. You know, I went on all these other websites and nobody was talking about the potential allergenicity of these foods. And so I thought, you know, could they really not be aware of it? I mean, why, why is no one talking about this? Um, there were studies that were being funded by the EPA that were looking into the allergenicity, and yet none of the large food allergy groups were talking about it. And so as I reached out to them, naturally, um, as a concerned mother of four and was wanting to contribute in some way or to help, um, these groups kind of had an allergic reaction to me. And it was, it was stunning at first. And then I thought, you know, this, this doesn't make any sense. And so because I come from this financial background, I pulled their financial statements and looked into some of the funding behind some of their medical board. And I realized that the very companies that were introducing these agricultural chemical products into our food, these new proteins, were the same ones funding some of these doctors and some of these organizations. And so as I learned that, I thought, okay, well, you know, technically there's nothing wrong with that, but they have not been transparent with those financial relationships. And if they do present a conflict of interest, I think parents need to know there needs to be full disclosure so that we can make an informed choice when we're weighing the opinion of these organizations and these doctors. And so as I began to build out a little website at allergykids.com to really help educate parents where there was this giant gap in the knowledge, um, it brought the attention of the press. And, you know, I was fortunate to have um, been connected to a, a remarkable producer at the CBS Early Show who did an amazing story on how moms were growing increasingly concerned about all these chemicals and all these pollutants basically in our food. And so um, as it started to hit the press, um, the New York Times ran a story that, that was, you know, a pretty sensational story. And that one triggered the interest of the publishing world. And so they reached out to me. And what was so remarkable in that is that within a couple of weeks, I was in New York, you know, having drafted a, a, a book proposal. And I was primarily sitting in these conference rooms with other moms. And they couldn't believe that this had happened to our food supply. And so it became this incredible team effort of all of us collectively lending our expertise and our insight and our knowledge to really creating something that could teach American families how to protect the health of their children the way children in other developed countries were already being protected. Wonderful. And, and what is the name of your book? Do you want to give that to our listeners so they can know about it? The name of the book is The Unhealthy Truth, How Our Food's Making Us Sick and What We Can Do About It. Um, it was reviewed by Aaron Brockovich, Graydon Carter of Vanity Fair, Dr. Oz, um, Robert Kennedy. All of them provided quotes um, initially when it was published on Mother's Day of 2009. And, you know, really, um, I'm, I'm so grateful for the opportunity. It was a tremendous amount of work um, because it enabled me to start the Allergy Kids Foundation, which now consists of an incredible board of advisors and, and medical team that really are emphasizing not only how important it is to, to do um, 
this and take these precautionary steps and how we can engage and protect the health of our families and then engage, you know, at higher levels in the community. Um, but it also, you know, it's, it's inspiring and it's empowering. And I also think, you know, truly given how sick we are as a country and the fact that this generation of kids has earned the title generation RX, that it really, um, it, it allows all of us to really, um, do something on a very patriotic level, because if you can help protect the health of your family, of your community, of your local economy, I mean, ultimately that is in the best interest of, of our country. And I think that's the part of it that people are beginning to recognize that this isn't some, you know, left wing thing. This isn't some lifestyle, the rich and famous or some hippie thing. This is truly one of the most patriotic things that we could be doing is protecting the health of our families. Yeah, well said, Robin. So let's talk about uh, the allergies, because I know there are a lot of moms out there that could use some help in how do they how do they start? Can can you go through and give us some ideas? The way moms can ha- and protect the health of their children. I mean, you know, honestly, yeah. I mean, for me, honestly, I was very overwhelmed in the beginning because I thought, you know, these ingredients, artificial colors, artificial growth hormones, genetically engineered ingredients, things that I had never paid attention to. As I suddenly looked in my kitchen cupboards, I'm like, they're in everything. Where do I even start? You know, and I've got four kids, limited time, limited budget. I understand how hard it is to simply get a child to eat. And yet I thought, you know, I can't do nothing. I have to do something. And so for us, that very first step was simply to try to eat less processed food because estimates show from the Grocery Manufacturers Association, somewhere around 75% of processed foods contain these genetically engineered ingredients. So that was simply the first place that I started. And then the other thing I really wanted to make sure to do was get that artificial growth hormone out of the kid's dairy. I did not want to be part of this experiment with the U.S. where we were the only developed country in the world to have allowed it. And so we looked for milk that was labeled RBGH free or organic because by law it wasn't allowed to contain those things. Okay, we are going to take a a brief break to pay attention to our sponsors. We will be right back. This is Carol again, and I just wanted to talk to you about one of our new sponsors, Hole in the Wall Herb and Vitamin Shop up in Woodland Park. The owners, Mark and Nancy Duvall, are not only close personal friends, but they're also my nutritional gurus. They are now selling, teaching, and doing a Syra bioenergetic testing on their clients. I had this done, and I found out all my food allergies, emotional stressors, environmental sensitivities, hormonal balance, and I received a customized homeopathic remedy. Please call them for more information at 1-800-437-3240. Linda Masterson, Soul Purpose Astrologer, works with astrological tools and with guides in the non-physical to assist ones in knowing their soul purpose. Important in this process is identification of significant blockages. In each session, tools are provided for working with self to clear resistance and free talents, skills, and abilities to fuller expression. The goal is to take responsibility for and to accelerate the healing process. Phone sessions are offered by Linda. Please visit Linda at lindamasterson.com or call 808-651-0307. Again, that's 808-651-0307. 
So we were talking about um, ways that, that, you know, parents can really um, get some of these foods that are creating allergies, you know, out of their kids' diets uh, in a way that's not so over, overwhelming. And you indicated, you know, to get the get the milk with the uh, with the hormone in it out of their diet and to stop buying processed food and it, it also um, I just wanted to add that people can go to the non GMO uh, non GMO shopping guide dot com and you can download an actual PDF document there that will list all of the foods that have been non GMO certified plus a list of additives that you may not recognize in some of the foods you're buying that have hidden GMOs in them so that that's another really good resource so Robin what else can parents do well you know thankfully there's a lot that we can do anything that's been labeled USD organic by law, <clears throat> sorry, is not allowed to contain these ingredients. And so by looking for products that have been labeled with that seal, it legally means that they, those producers have had to adhere to the standard that says the meat that's labeled US, USDA organic has not been fed genetically engineered crops or produced with genetically engineered crops in any way. It can't contain the artificial growth hormones or the antibiotics. And so, you know, if you, you, none of us can afford to do everything, but all of us can afford to do something. And so a great place to start is to simply pick the products that your family consumes the most of and begin there. Right. You know, and I hear that a lot, that it's too expensive to buy organic. And my response to that is, what do you choose to spend your money on? Um, you know, it, to me, what I put in my body and what I put in my family's body is number one, uh, uh, you know, for the health of me and my family. And, and the other thing is what is the cost of, you know, getting allergies and taking these toxins into your body? And I know that's a tough argument for some people, but it's one, I think that's important to discuss, well, you know, it brings up a really good point because when people first suggested to me that I buy organic, I didn't want to hear it. I mean, it just it was it was expensive. I felt guilty. I didn't want to be told that I could afford organic food or buy a TV. I mean, none of those arguments helped for me. And so I wanted to understand as I was coming into this, you know, why is organic food more expensive? And I think it's a really important part because I think right now, you know, the responsibility falls on the consumer when really at the federal level, we're doing a really lousy job of making this organic food affordable to all Americans. And to me, clean and safe food should be, uh, it's a basic human right. I mean, that's just something that we should be afforded as Americans. Right. As I, as I really looked into this, I thought, you know, here with all of our taxpayer dollars that are going into our national budget as a national family, those taxpayer dollars are used to support the farmers that are growing everything with all these toxic chemicals, these toxic pesticides, and these genetically engineered ingredients. So our taxpayer resources go towards that way of farming. And then the farmers that are growing things organically, which means by law without the use of all of these ingredients, they're charged fees to prove that their stuff is safe. They're then charged fees to label it. They don't get the same crop insurance. They don't get the same marketing assistance programs that the conventional guys get. So their whole cost of production is higher because they're not getting the taxpayer support. And again, I think this speaks to, you know, we've got to do more than just change how we shop in a grocery store. We've got to take it to a higher level and say, you know, we as, we as voters, we as taxpayers demand clean and safe food. 
and we want to see our taxpayer resources allocated towards the growing of food without these harmful chemicals so that we can protect the health of our families, which ultimately protects, us, protects the health of our country and pro protects the health of our economy. And so it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on because, you know, cancer really doesn't care if you're a Republican or you're a Democrat. And it doesn't matter if your priorities are the military. If, if we don't have children that are healthy and strong enough to be able to serve this country in whatever capacity, whether it's through the military, whether it's as entrepreneurs, whether it's as you know, new legislators, if they're not healthy enough to serve our country, that is to the detriment of us as a country. Right. I agree. And, you know, I think with these uh, genetically engineered foods, they affect the children uh, more so than they might affect you or I, because we grew up uh, eating healthier foods. And so our immune system is stronger. Uh, and, you know, absolutely. And I say, you know, here I was feeding my kids mac and cheese, thinking I ate mac and cheese as a kid. I mean, surely, you know, what's the big deal? Mm -hmm. Not realizing that the ingredients had changed at the DNA level. I mean, that's a profound change to, to introduce into the food supply without a label. And so while the jury's still out on the science and the industry will say there's no evidence of harm, well, and, and they're right, because there's not a single fetal study, there's not a childhood development study, there are no human trials long-term, so they have no evidence. And they're saying there's no evidence of harm. And I think, you know, until we have that science, consumers have a right to know what they're eating, and that's why, you know, these foods truly should require labels. Well, some of these biotech companies, too, have, uh, have made it so that Nobody can really conduct the studies without their consent, and um, you know it's it makes you wonder that uh, they're they're the only ones that have done the studies, and that doesn't make sense. Yeah, I think when it comes to something as intimate as the food supply, to not have open sourced science is is it's, it's stunning that they've been able to do it, and I think you know this this ignorant. Um, you know, of the American public, you know, I was a perfect example of that. You know, here I had studied all these things, gotten this great education, and I was absolutely clueless that this had happened to the food supply. Um, you know, I think that they've, they've relied on that um, to the point where, you know, now this stuff is so pervasive in the American food supply that, you know, people are just, I mean, it's almost like they've just become numb to the awareness of it. And I think um, what's happening, though, at the same time, is that we do have this growing burden of disease. And, you know, for me, when my daughter had that allergic reaction, I then had a son that got really sick. You know, those two things together sort of catalyzed me into this. I just thought, well, I can't wait. You know, I can either pay for disease at the doctor's office or I can pay for health at the grocery store. And that was a shift that I had to make. Um, it's not going to be for everyone. And it's not necessarily going to be an all or nothing for everyone. Um, but as we made that shift... You know, I then realized that we have this incredible capacity to manage the health of our families. And by simply making a few dietary changes, you know, kick the artificial colors out of your kids' foods. Instead of blue yogurt, get white yogurt and put sprinkles on it. I mean, there's so many little things that we can do. And as we began to make those small changes, they add up. And so, you know, as I looked, as I sat back and I thought, okay, what are the rates of disease here? Well, one in three American kids is, has autism, allergies, ADHD, or asthma. According to the CDC, one in three Caucasian kids and one in two minority kids born in the year 2000 are expected to be insulin dependent by the time they reach adulthood. We all hear the data on obesity. I mean, these are major conditions that are impacting the health of our kids. And the costs associated with those are impacting the health of our economy, and they will continue over the health of these children. 
And so to really say, you know, how can we do a better job of, of managing these costs? You know, the science gets too much, in my opinion, he said, she said. And how can we manage the costs, you know, so that we address the economic impact that these, are, these, these conditions are having on the health of our, our country? Yeah. And what about in our schools? I think this is a big problem, too, because look at some of the uh, food that we serve our children in the schools. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, when people were first telling me to pay attention to that, oh, it was heartache. I didn't want to hear it. You know, I've got four kids in the public school system. Mm-hmm. And to learn that the food that's not used by the grocery stores, that's not used by the restaurants, right. not used by the livestock industry for cattle feed, that the leftovers are basically just disposed of in the national school lunch program. I mean, that was just heartache to learn. Do you have any suggestions on how we can um, shift that? You know, I think probably one of the greatest lessons I learned is how easy it is to actually get involved in democracy. Um, I had people early on suggest to reach out to local congressmen and senators. And my reaction was, that it's just not me. You've got the wrong mom. There's no way I can do that. I don't have the background. I don't know anything about policy or legislation. But then at the same time, I thought, you know, like, this is the health of our kids. I mean, if, if moms don't start talking about this, who will? And yeah. so I reached out. I reached out to a local congressman's office five years ago. And I was so completely blown away by how open they were to the dialogue, mm-hmm. how appreciative they were to learn about these concerns and this information. And then they then went on to share. They knew that if one mom had come in there, and I mean, truly, I was in that meeting with my daughter on my hip in a sippy cup and a diaper bag. They said, if one mom is in here, we know that there are hundreds behind you who share the same concern. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what I've learned from them is the letters you write, the emails you send, the calls you make, they make a huge difference in giving these legislators the confidence to move on policy that affects the health of our children. And so they don't know that you care unless they hear from you. And so I cannot emphasize enough how important, even just those little emails online, um, to realize that you can be such an incredible part of democracy and change. Right. And we encourage people to do that all the time. Uh, Food Integrity Now, we constantly are saying, don't believe us, do your own research and get involved. You know, uh, because if you don't get involved, somebody may be making the choices for you in your life that are not beneficial. So I also think that it's important for parents to go to their schools and see what their kids are eating. And, and demand higher quality. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I mean, you, you, you don't want to be one of those annoying moms that, you know, starts wagging her finger and everything. But if you come at it from a place of compassion and concern, you are very likely to find others that share that concern and share those emotions. And then you have a team and you can do it together. And, you know, a lot of people say, what's the first thing I should do? What's, you know, what can I do to clean out my kid's diet? And I think truly the first thing you need to do is find a friend that you can begin to make these changes with. Because food is a very intimate issue. It's so much more than just food. And if you have somebody to stand beside you, you know, when the inevitable eye-rolling in-laws or whoever they might be come along, you've got someone who's got your back, who you can sort of navigate those early stages with. And then what is so remarkable is that as you begin to create this change in your own family or your own school or your own community, you naturally become a leader in the space. And others will turn to you and say, you know, what can we do? What can, what can I do, you know, to start to make these changes? And I think it really does speak to 
our collective abilities and the unique talents and insight and experience that all of us have that, you know, are required to create this change. Right. And there are school districts in, uh, I know in California that have like Berkeley that have all organic foods in their, in their school lunches. And that was inspired by Alice Waters and, uh, and people like that. So we can make a difference. And, you know, California tends to, to be really progressive and kind of has a strong grassroots in this area. And right now there's initiative that's being proposed, uh, to be on the 2012 ballot to have the labeling of genetically modified foods so that so that we don't have to guess when we're going to the grocery store so that we can pick up something and read, oh, this is genetically modified. I'm going to make a choice not to buy this. You know, especially when it comes to something so intimate and, and nurturing is, is caring for the health of your family. And, you know, right now the only two genetically engineered products that are on the market one is designed to help um, these chemical companies sell more of their weed killer, and then the other is designed to help these crops produce their own insecticides. So there's no consumer benefit to either one of those. And, you know, if, if there were a consumer benefit, you bet those things would be on the labels. They'd be wanting to, to tout the success of them. Um, but there is no consumer benefit, and they're very, they may very well be consumer harm. Yeah. I, I think that I think there's no doubt in my mind. So uh, we are going to take another brief break, and when we come back, uh, let's talk about um, some of the allergies and what uh, what parents can do in their kitchens as well to eliminate some of these allergens. You are listening to Food Integrity now, and we will be right back. My name is Jennifer, and I'm a health fanatic. I admit it. I read all the labels, eat organic food, and I'm very aware of what I put into my body. I practice holistic health, use alternative healing products, and never miss my daily dose of Willard Water. Willard Water is made with fossilized organics and contains nearly two dozen trace minerals that are essential to maintaining strong bones, heart health, and good energy. Simply adding a quarter capful of Willard Water to my tea makes a tremendous impact on my overall well-being. Willard Water is tasteless and odorless. Dr. Willard's patented catalyst helps our bodies better absorb the minerals and nutrients we need to maintain optimal health. If you care about your health, you'll try Willard Water today. To learn more about the benefits of Willard Water, call us at 888-379-4552 or visit our website at drwillard.com. That's drwillard.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration, and Willard Water is not intended to treat, diagnose, cure, or prevent any diseases. Hi, I'm Carol Gravet, and I'm one of the hosts of Food Integrity Now. And I've just teamed up with Sharon Farrell of Rocky Mountain Sacred Journeys. And we'd like you to come join us on an amazing adventure of fun and self-discovery. Please join us for one of our ongoing trips to Hawaii to swim with the dolphins in the wild. To find out more about our ongoing trips, please go to Wild DolphinsSwimAdventures.com or call us at 
Welcome back to Food Integrity Now, and we are talking with Robin O'Brien about uh, the food uh, supply, our food supply here in America that is uh, less than perfect. And we are talking about allergies, and one of the things that I saw on your website is that you list uh, ways that parents can really uh, make their kitchens more allergy-free. So do you want to just briefly go over some of those ways? Well, yeah. You know, one of the chief concerns with the introduction of genetically engineered ingredients into our food supply was the allergenicity. The United Nations, the Food and Agricultural Organization said... This is of such concern that these products should be labeled because we have no long-term human trials and we need to have a way to trace any health Im- impact that they may have. And so in countries that actually did allow for the introduction of these ingredients, there are labels so that consumers could make an informed choice, but also so that the science could be conducted to sh- see the impact that these ingredients have had on the health of populations. In the U.S., we basically ran a blind experiment on the entire U.S. population by introducing these ingredients into the food supply without long-term human studies and without labels. And so, you know, as, as I really kind of dug into that, I thought, well, how, do, how could an, a regular mom on a regular budget afford clean and safe food that's free of these genetically engineered ingredients? Because in a perfect world, yeah, we would all be able to afford to buy organics and shop at Whole Foods all the time, but most people don't live in that world. And I certainly didn't with four little kids and picky eaters and limited time and a limited budget. And so, you know, for us, we took baby steps. Um, the first genetically engineered product was that artificial growth hormone. So I looked for milk labeled RBGH free or USDA organic. I specifically decided to choose USDA organic because by law, not only did it not contain that artificial growth hormone, but the cows were not allowed to be fed that genetically engineered corn or soy. Um, since the two largest genetically engineered crops are corn and soy, we decided to really dial back on our exposure to the conventional corn and soy and look for soy that had been labeled USDA organic because by law it did not allow those genetically engineered ingredients and that technology process into its DNA. And so, um, you know, initially in order to budget it into to the family budget, you know, we simply ate less corn and soy products. Um, And then when we did choose corn or soy, we chose organic products. Um, And then, you know, one of the other larger crops is canola. Um, And so, you know, again, to just make that switch from conventional canola oil to organic canola oil or to simply switch oils altogether, you know. um, And again, it was really important for me, and I found it very important um, to the groups that I speak with, the audience that I share this information with. It is so important not to make the perfect the enemy of the good because none of us can do everything but all of us can do something and so you know I really cannot emphasize enough how important it is to focus on progress not perfection right exactly and I pretty much have eliminated all canola uh, all soy all corn from my diet just precautionary because there is cross-contamination and I think that's going to be coming more of an issue you know, as we allow uh, more of these genetically modified crops, you know, into into our our life. And I know you live in Boulder, right, Robin? 
I do now. You know, I'm originally from Texas. Right. So there's a big issue up right now in Boulder regarding the use of its uh, 25,000 open space land. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with that? Uh, yeah, I've been working on this issue for the last several years. Yeah, yeah. You know, we had Scott and Mary Smith on our show this week, too, and uh, there's a big hearing on uh, tomorrow. Or is it today? Is it today? It's tonight at 7 o'clock in Longmont. Right. And I, t I testified to these same commissioners um, about two and a half years ago on the same issue. And at the time, they basically delayed action and kicked mm -hmm. it down the road. And so now here we are two and a half years later addressing the same issue um, the political pressure um, is is growing, and it's very intense. And the industry will basically say, we, this decision needs to be based on science. Well, the only science we've got is their industry-funded science. There are enormous gaps in the science. There are no long-term human trials, as I mentioned earlier. There are no childhood development studies. There are no fetal studies. A recent study out of Canada showed that these crops, the insecticidal toxins that they contain, have now been found in the blood of 93% of pregnant moms and 80% of their unborn babies. I mean, this is a science experiment happening live in the United States right now. And that is not something anybody wants to hear. It was something that was so hard to acknowledge. Um, and yet what we're now seeing is not only have these ingredients been introduced into our food supply without labels, but now here in Boulder, which some could argue is absolutely the epicenter of the organic industry. I mean, so much... There's been such an incredible growth in spirit and entrepreneurialism that has been born out of Boulder. What's happening right now is that in order to meet shareholder demand and in order to drive earnings, these agricultural chemical companies need more land. And so now they have come to Boulder and said, we want to take your parks and your open space and that public land that all of us voted for as taxpayers, and we want to lease it and put our crops on it. And so, there, again, like there's no advantage to Boulder to this other than this, this leasing out of the land. Um, we're opening the door wide open to corporations to basically come in and say, yeah, we're going to lease your open space. So, you know, if we've got big agrochemical companies now, do we have big oil companies next year? Do we have a big tobacco firm that wants to build a factory next year? I mean, where does it stop? And, again, sometimes, you know, in our need for um, money, um, a lot of decisions are made without a lot of thought to the long-term implications, to the regulation that might need to be in place. And um, in this particular case, why it is of such concern in Boulder is that, you know, we are the heart of the organic industry. There's so much organic farming out here. And this whole issue of contamination and pollution of the organic industry should these crops um, cross-contaminate. And so, um, you know, for me, the issue truly on this one is that, you know, we've got three commissioners who are putting the health and well-being of these six farmers who want to grow these agrochemical products on our public land ahead of the health of 64,000 children in Boulder and however many citizens we have without voter consent. You know, and we vote on how we want to use our taxpayer dollars to fund this, this land, and yet then it's just taken away from us and leased out to some giant chemical corporation. And I think really that's the issue. It's very heated. Um, you know, apparently there are some pretty heavy political guns that are going to show up tonight. And um, again, it really speaks to how important it is for all of us to share our concern and make our voices heard. Because if we say nothing, there's this assumption that we don't care. Well, I think that's a great example of democracy in action, what is happening in Boulder, where the citizens are taking a stand and saying no. So I really, I really hope that things go well. What is going to be decided this evening, Robin? 
You know, I mean, uh, we've had two of the um, policy teams advise the commissioners that we phase these genetically engineered crops off of public land. Um, there's now intense political pressure coming at the state level on these three commissioners. And, you know, we were hoping for a decision that they would agree to phase these um, GMO crops off of our public land. Um, if they can kick the can down the road again, like they did in 2009, um, I, I think that they would probably try to do that. I mean, they don't want to accept the political liability for this. And, you know, it's it's what's so stunning is that, you know, who carries the liability for these crops should they be proven to cause harm? Who carries that liability? Do the six farmers carry it? Will the three commissioners be liable for it? Should this be proven to cause harm because they signed off on this policy? Taxpayers have no, they have no voice in this decision right now whatsoever. And so, you know, I think the solution would truly be let's put it to a taxpayer vote. Let the voters decide what we do with our own public plan that we have funded with our taxpayer resources. Well, I hope that happens because it's really the only thing that makes sense. And um, I hope these commissioners do the right thing. You know, I, I absolutely do too. But, you know, there are incredible um, vested interests, you know, at play in this one. So I know. Well, Mary and Scott were saying that they were going to not allow any outside influence at the hearing tonight and were going to request that uh, representatives from these biotech companies you know, that they don't have any say in this. But uh, we'll see how that goes. I mean, these are some pretty powerful interests. And, you know, in a perfect world, it would be great to really let the voters and the community decide. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, there's there's a lot at stake. And um, the, the representatives for these chemical corporations have been in attendance at every single one of these things over the last several years. So I would fully expect them to be there today. Yeah, yeah. I th I think um, my sense is they may get booed down. So yeah. <laughs> uh, whatever it takes. Uh, so let's switch gears a little bit here for a few minutes. And this is something I've been thinking about a lot. I I talked to my daughter last night, and she's been having a lot of stomach issues. And you know, I suggested that maybe she has uh, uh, a gluten intolerance. So why do you think that so many so many people, uh, you know, can't eat gluten. Whereas when we, when I was growing up, for sure, that was not an issue. What do you think it is about the gluten? You know, again, I just think, you know, what the doctors are saying is we've got this synergistic toxicity, which basically means we've got this compound toxicity. All of these toxins in our environment, in our air, in our water, and now particularly in our food, whether it's toxic pesticides, artificial growth hormones, these artificial food colors that are created from, you know, petroleum. I mean, we are ingesting things in record amounts that we've never ingested before. And when you consider the fact that 70% of your immune system is found in your digestive tract, that, it just corrodes those pipes and it makes you vulnerable to things that we may not have been vulnerable for. And so, you know, where we may have had the tolerance to withstand a lot of these things up until probably the last 20 or 30 years, suddenly the food supply is so polluted that we just, we can't withstand the same things. So is it necessarily gluten? I mean, was gluten, was gluten such a trigger prior to the pollution of the food supply? I don't think so. Um, but, you know, again, with the growing of wheat crops, I mean, the, the hundreds of chemicals that are applied to those wheat crops in the growing process, um, you know, present an incredible um, burden on a system when you're trying, when your system is trying to process those foods. I mean, our, our systems aren't designed 
to process chemicals. They're designed to digest and process food. And so, you know, what happens is it, it just kind of can send things haywire in the gut. And thankfully, you know, there's a lot of science that's coming out on this right now. You know, um, there's a remarkable doctor named Kenneth Bach. He's authored a book called Healing the New Childhood Epidemics, Allergies, Autism, ADHD, and Asthma. He wrote the foreword to my book, and he's on the medical board of the Allergy Kids Foundation. And he basically just says, you know, we've got this compound toxicity, and we've really got to try to address it in whatever way we can. And, um, you know, in certain senses, you know, that's dialing back on some of these things we've discussed, um, like getting the artificial growth hormones out or these artificial colors or these genetically engineered products, getting them out of the food supply um, in order to reduce that toxic burden on our digestive system. And I think, you know, this, this, this gluten issue that we're seeing is a symptom of this greater problem. Yeah, I do too. I don't think it's necessarily the one thing. It's a culmination of um, all the pesticides and genetically modified foods and toxins that are just in our systems that we didn't ha that we didn't have 30 years ago. Right. And again, you know, it, it speaks to how incredibly important it is to drink water and to get exercise because it's like you can't avoid this stuff, you know, in if you try to, you end up living in a, in a cave. You know, I mean, it's like we have to have the grace and the flexibility to live in the real world. And so, you know, you do what you can with what you have where you are. I often suggest that people strive for the 80-20 rule where 80% of the time they do the best job they can. The other 20% of the time you have to have the grace and flexibility to know that your kids are going to go to a birthday party. They're going to go to Chuck E. Cheese. They're going to get a blue cupcake. You know, those things happen. We live in the real world. And so have the grace and flexibility, but also be mindful of ways that you can really help, you know, clean your system. And, and again, you know, flushing it with water and getting exercise. I mean, those, those go a long way to keeping us safe. Right. And I also think, Robin, it's important to teach our kids about food and educate our, our children in the same way. You know, absolutely. And when we came through this, you know, one of the kids said, you know, Mom, we didn't always used to eat this way. And I said, no, you know, I didn't know. I, I didn't know that the food had all of these ingredients in them. But now that I know, I love you guys so much. And why would I feed you something that's made out of petroleum? I mean, and, and that's so basic. And you, and you realize that these children have this incredible capacity to learn and understand and absorb this information. And you can really teach them, you know, I don't want you to have um, eczema on your skin that, you, that you're embarrassed to take your shirt off at the pool. You know, I don't want you to always have a headache and a tummy ache, you know. And if we start to make simple changes and you can make some smart choices, we can avoid all of that or most of it. And I think to really empower the children so that they can make their own choices is incredibly important because you look at the rates of eating disorders in college girls and nobody wants to set a child down that path. And so, you know, you really want to say, you know, you have the ability to make these choices so that you are healthy and strong and contribute everything you have to contribute to right. our country. Right. And our, and our kids are going to be the ones that educate the next generation. So I think it's really important to, to just get them involved. And we encourage people, we've had many people on our show that have talked about growing some of your own food. And, you know, not everybody can have a big garden and stuff, but just start with something simple like radishes. Anybody can grow a radish <laughs> indoors. And to get your kids involved in this is where your food comes from. It doesn't come from a box 
you know, which is what where uh, a lot of our the kids nowadays they think food food comes from boxes because it's there's so much processed food and there's so much you know frozen food and and uh, quick food and to really uh, teach kids that you know you can grow food and this is where it comes from and get them involved they love it. Yeah, and you know I think um, you know again it really speaks to having a compassion and the fact that. None of us can do everything. There's so many issues that we're dealing with today. Right. The rates of the rates of unemployment are tremendously high. The rates of cancer are high. The rates of autism are high. And all of that is weighing on our families. And so none of us can do everything. Right. But all of us can do something. And I think to really give yourself permission to just do that one thing. I mean, you're right. Like if it's a kid bringing home that lima bean growing in a cup, you can do that. You may have forgotten or you may have lost the confidence in yourself to do it, but you can actually do that just the way you can make one small change. You know, for us early on, we wanted to, to, to use less of that artificial dye and that artificial growth hormone. And so I truly used half that pack of artificial fluorescent orange powder on the kids' mac and cheese. I mean, it was that simple and that small where I started. And yet it was empowering in knowing that, you know, even these little things, they make a difference. Right, because it can be daunting and overwhelming for people to say, oh, my God, i got to throw out every single thing in my kitchen and I can't afford to replace it all, you know, and I agree with what you're saying. Take one step at a time and and gravitate toward an area that you're passionate about. If you're, if you feel passionate about going to the schools and, and talking to, you know, the school about changing the lunches or, you know, write your congressperson or do just whatever, take one small little step, because if we all do that, we can really make a difference. Absolutely. And I think that is probably one of the most important things people could take away is that all of us have the ability to create this change. Right. So, Robin, before we um, wind up here, we got a couple of minutes. Uh, Would you let our listeners know uh, your website and just tell us a little bit about your website and what they can expect to find there? Um, On on the website for the Allergy Kids Foundation, you can find that at allergykids.com. And there um, we've got the list of tips um, that, that you can um, use to help reduce your family's exposure. We've got all kinds of information. You know, we've got definitions from the science community of what exactly is a genetically engineered food. Um, there were things that, you know, I just felt were so important when it came to educating families about ways that we could protect the health of our children. And so that that site is really geared at parents that are looking to protect the health of the one in three American children with autism, allergies, ADHD, or asthma, because sadly, what they're finding is that food allergies um, are very common in in children with all four of those conditions. And then my personal website at robinobrien.com, there's also a link to um, a talk that I've recently given, which covers a lot of this information, which is short, and you can use that to share with others. who may or may not be ready for this information, because I know I certainly was, and I know that to deliver it with a kindness and with a compassion and an understanding for how hard this change can be is incredibly important. And um, the other thing I would really encourage the listeners to do is share your stories, because we are so powerful together, and to really not underestimate how important your voice is. Well, thank you very much, and I wanted to say one thing about Robin's website, Robin O'Brien. Robin is spelled with a Y. R-O-B-Y-N, O'Brien, uh, dot com. 
So thank you so much, Robin. One of the takeaways that I got from speaking with you today is I appreciate what you do in this world and I appreciate the way you do it because uh, you do it with a lot of compassion as a parent and uh, I think that's important. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Carolyn. Thanks for the great work you're doing. Oh, you're welcome. You are listening to Food Integrity Now. And stay tuned for more great shows. Thanks for listening.